Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host, Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. Today, I talk with Laura Cruz, who's a New York-based Pilates instructor, and the subject of our conversation is the illusion of the Pilates body. Why we're still clinging to this notion that you need to look like a dancer and be able to do the splits in order to be good at Pilates, and that Pilates is some kind of performative kind of endeavor, and how we can increase accessibility to Pilates and actually let go of our imposter syndrome and need to, you know, be quote unquote, you know, proper Pilates instructors and inject our own personality, our own unique humanness into the way that we teach and the and the way that we relate with our clients whilst maintaining our boundaries and our sanity. All that coming up. Hi Laura. Hi Raph, how are you? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm I'm awesome. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. Um, we had such a great conversation a few weeks back and uh, it was such an awesome conversation. And you said some stuff that really blew my mind. Uh, and I wanted to share that, you know, conversation with the, <laughs> with the Pilates Elephants <laughs> listenership. So um, before we get stuck into it, can you just introduce yourself, you know, however you think of yourself um, and whatever you want to share with with, with the folks? Sure. I'm Laura. Uh, I am a New York City based movement coach. I primarily work with Pilates, um, but I kind of sprinkle in a lot of other modalities that I've been trained in. Uh, so, strength training, uh, mobility training, uh, breathing, somatic movement. Uh, and yeah, I just try to help people find the best versions of themselves. And I've been teaching for about, what year is it? I always have to figure out what year it is. <laughs> I've been teaching for about nine years. Um, and it's been just like a very interesting arc from start to present. Um, you know, I, I started not having any sort of physical background. I wasn't a mover. I wasn't a dancer like so many of my colleagues were. Um, I really started from scratch, not just like within the Pilates community, but within my own body. And I really try to share a lot of that uh, experience, a lot of my own personal experience with other people and assure them that it's okay for them not to understand things and not know what I'm asking them to do and that the best thing they can do is just try. And that's kind of like the underlying theme of like all of my sessions and everything that we do. And that's how I choose my exercises. And that's how I blend everything together is, you know, the only way that you could be fucking it up is if you like literally get up and you just walk away from me when I'm asking you to do something. Um, and otherwise you're doing the best job that you can do. And it's going to look really different from session to session. Um, yeah. And, and that's me. I just, uh, try to get the best version of somebody 
that I can, you know, and try to create autonomy and agency within their bodies so that they can walk out of the session and feel like I've made an impact on their lives and that they can kind of carry some of what we learned together into their day-to-day movement, whatever that is. What a great introduction. Um, what I really want to talk about with you today is the illusion of the Pilates body. And, you know, because this is something that we talked about uh, when when we talked offline. And, you know, so could you, sh- could you share your, you know, basically your journey into Pilates? I mean, you started to talk about it just now about how you, you're not a dancer and, you know, you weren't sort of, don't have a background in sports or whatever. Um, so could you share kind of, you know, whatever you think's important about your journey to Pilates and, 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 you know, through the lens of not being a dancer, not being able to do the splits and, and all the rest of it? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I uh, always say it's very cliche. I'm like, you know, Pilates just happened and, and it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, but it kind of was, even though it does sound a little cliche, it was just something that happened. It was the first job that I got out of college. I was struggling to find anything. Um, and the first place that really gave me a chance was a Pilates studio. And I became an office manager. I had never heard of Pilates, had no idea what Pilates was, walked into this Pilates studio, saw these reformers and the Cadillac and saw people get on them and moving really slow and moving around. And none of it made sense to me. All of it looks really, really easy also, right? Like coming from the perspective of like never having done it. I'm like, these folks like are barely moving and they're shaking around. Like it doesn't really make sense (laughs) what they're doing. Um, And after a couple of months, the uh, owner was like, you need to get on the equipment and start to do a few of the classes because you can't be here selling it and like helping people get into the studio if you don't know what we're actually doing. Uh, which is when I was pleasantly, maybe unpleasantly surprised by how challenging Pilates really was. Um, And I started feeling things in my body that I had never felt before. And, uh, you know, after maybe a couple of years of being at that studio, a few things happened, like the uh, Great Recession happened. And so we were located in Midtown and a lot of our business started to disappear because Lehman Brothers, right, all these big companies shut down. We lost a lot of business. My pay went down. My hours went down as like a natural consequence of what was happening. And I started thinking about options, like what am I going to do if this job doesn't sustain itself if if I have to find something else. Um, And I started thinking about all these dancers and all these people that were in the studio who seemed like they were living their best lives, even though I didn't really understand what a a 7am session felt like. It just seems like really alluring, right? Like, wow, they come in at seven and they leave at 10 and then they eat at the park and then they do dance classes all day. And then they come back for these, you know, six, seven o'clock PM sessions and, Um, I didn't realize what that meant. You know, now I I realize that that's not an ideal that I'm working towards. But at the time I was like, wow. And then I also was like writing their paychecks. Right. So I'm like, whoa, they're making, you know, $35 an hour, which seems like, whoa, (laughs) that's so much money. And they seem so happy. And so um, after a couple of weeks, I decided that I was going to become a Pilates instructor um, because it seemed like the next best option. Um, and it felt like it was the right direction to take myself, even though I didn't really know what I was getting myself involved in. Um, and then, you know, the other shoe dropped because I went through the anatomy courses. I went through the mat class or the mat certification. 
um, and soon realized that I had no idea what I was doing. I had never taken the math, a math class, right? I had only ever done a few classes on the reformer. So that was really, really new to me. Um, and then it also, you know, hit me that I was surrounded by a lot of people that were not just like able-bodied because I, I don't want to say that I wasn't able-bodied because I was, and it wasn't like I was like injured. Right. But they were so much more in touch with their bodies because they had been dancing since they were, you know, 10, 12, 15. Right. And, and I literally had never taken a dance class. I had never taken a group fitness class. I had maybe joined the gym every January for a couple of years. And then I would quit by March. You know, I would get on the treadmill, not know what I was doing. And then I, I'd be like, I don't want this membership anymore. Please, please stop charging me. <laughs> you know, like that was my, that was my relationship with my body. Um, I, it, it was really not a relationship, right? I didn't really have a relationship with my body at all. Um, yeah. And so I started doing Pilates, uh, you know, as a student realized how challenging it was. And then also started realizing that I was not just different in terms of they were able-bodied and I was quote unquote not, but also, uh, they were so far advanced knowledge wise that they, it's like, I was getting left behind. Like they didn't want to, um, do their super, you know, the supervised teaching hours with me or their, their apprentice hours with me. They didn't want to take the time to have to carry the dead weight that didn't really know what was going on. Um, so I became very uh, isolated and kind of disassociated from the people that were around me because I was living a very different life, right? I, I was a very different body. Um, I didn't look like everybody else. There weren't, from what I remember, I don't, and nobody in, in my course was brown, right? Everybody was, was white. So there was also a very different perspective there. Um, and yeah, I, I felt really isolated, um, but I knew that I was making the right decision doing this thing because I had gained so much control um, and autonomy of my own body, learning about it, right? Like that that gives you agency, like suddenly like, oh, I, I can I can recognize what I'm feeling. I, I know where these bones are. I know what muscles are, right? Like I, you have such a different relationship when you're on the practitioner end that I knew I just wanted to keep going through it by any means necessary. Um, and that, that led me into the equipment course, which of course we know here's another, you know, the, the illusion of the, the body isn't just the body itself, but it's also the, um, illusion that Pilates is for everybody in terms of being able to afford these courses. And that's not true. Right. So the only way I was able to get through to the equipment course was by doing a work study with the studio that I got trained with, which was the Kane School in Manhattan, um, and asking my family to help me because otherwise there would have been absolutely no way for me to go through the program. Um, I was working two full-time jobs at the time, so I ended up going and getting other jobs to help sustain this career change I was doing, which most of my cohorts, again, were not doing that. A lot of them were spending five, six hours a day dancing around Manhattan, which bless their hearts. That's great. Um, but that's not my experience, right? I was, I was working a ton and then working the work study. And I did that for about a year getting through the program. And then again, it just isolated me even more because my schedule was just so, it was so busy, right? I had, I had to pay my rent. I had to sustain my life, um, in a way that I feel like other people just weren't, weren't getting it. And, and we didn't, always intersects, right? We didn't always mesh. So that also affected, you know, my relationship with other people at the studio, because I don't know that they got it. You know, they didn't understand how hard I was working on the back end, And, they, you know, it's not really their business to know any of that anyway, but they didn't really, you know, ask, right. And nobody was really trying to 
helped me because again, I was like the dead weight that didn't really understand what was going on and was working really hard to figure out um, all this information. You know, you get you get hit with the equipment information or the equipment course and it feels like a hydrant's been opened on you, right? It's like a fire hydrant of information. Um, and literally, like, I didn't know what was going on. Like, I, I just did not know what was going on. Um, and it was really, really tough, you know, because I think that there's also this underlying thing inside of Pilates or in the Pilates world where they're like, trust the method. And if you keep, if you just do the beginner exercises, then you'll be able to do the intermediate exercises. And if you do the intermediate exercises, then you'll be able to do the advanced exercises. And that's not how it works because bodies don't work like that. Like it's not like a straight trajectory upwards. Right. Um, and so here I am like also then feeling, I don't want to say like a victim. Right. But then being like, well, what the fuck is wrong with me that I can't like do candlestick? Like what's wrong with me that I can't do like springs in the air. Like what's I, I've been practicing, right. I've been practicing, I've been doing all the things like, why can't I get there? Um, and you know, now it's taken me many years to realize that's just because my body may never get to some of these places and that's okay. Um, but that took a really long time to get to, right. That took a, a really long arc to like get that confident and be like, Oh, maybe not everybody's body is supposed to do that thing. Can, can I just double click on, Oh, there's so much in there that I want to, Explore, I, know. <laughs> I want to double click on, I really like what you say about that, um, or that resonates with me about sort of like, it's not a straight line from beginner to advanced because that's my experience as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm not a dancer, but I was, I've been very physical in my life. I did martial arts, I did weights, I did track and field and stuff. And so I've always been very strong, but very, very stiff. And it's like, no matter how much I fucking stretch, I mean, I've stretched and stretched and stretched and I just like, I can still barely touch my toes, you know, like. 20 years later <laughs> um, uh, and it, you know, don't tell me to do the split to practice the splits. I've fucking practiced the splits you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it just hurts and I don't get any more flexible, but right. I can do con like control front with one arm and I could do that on my first lesson. You know, like the, some of the advanced stuff is like super easy for me and some of the beginner stuff is fucking impossible for me. Well, let's unpack that, right? Because who labeled these things advanced and beginner? It was just an arbitrary label, right? That's not even, those aren't right. real labels. Joe wasn't walking around going with a label maker saying like, well, here's your beginner stuff and like, here's your advanced right. stuff and you're going to start there and like not go over here. That's not how it worked. That was, that was an arbitrary system that was set up to make it, a, a trainable course, right? Like that's yeah. how you train people. You you make little modules out of things to make it easier. That doesn't mean that my body is going to think that some of these beginner exercises are easy. And then the advanced exercises are hard. Like that's not how it works. Some of the advanced stuff really is easy. Tendon stretch for some people is super easy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Pull-ups on the wonder chair for some people, super easy, right? You footwork, for some people is super challenging, right? You ask them to pull their knees in towards their body. Maybe that's just not where their hips are. And that could be really challenging for some people, even though we like have labeled that a beginner exercise. Like those are arbitrary terms that don't even mean anything. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, all right. So um, the, the other thing that I uh, want to just, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to just sort of, highlighted a little bit is what you said about accessibility and uh, the, you know, the cost, the financial cost. Um, and I think that that, you know, in, this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that, you know, inherently 
to make something more accessible, you know, one of the things we've got to do is reduce the cost, right? And it, this is not to say that everyone should drop their prices because I've, you know, I'm publicly on the record as <laughs> encouraging people to raise their prices. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think there's there's a place there's a place for different price points in the market, you know, and there's a there's a place for a lower cost version of Pilates that is more accessible. And then and you know of necessity, it's like well you're not going to get the white glove one on one VIP service for the same you know for for the a quarter of the price you know right. so so there's a place for. 20 people in a mat class you know, at a lower price point and there's a place for high-priced one-on-ones in Manhattan, you know, for the, right. for the, for the bankers who can afford it. And, you know, but, and both of those are great business models, you know, potentially. But I think that we sometimes in this industry, we have this kind of paradoxical sort of clash internal inconsistency of values where we think like okay pilates should be like artisanal and it should be one-on-one only and it should be super attention to detail and at the same time why is it just for rich you know people why don't more young people do it sort of thing right well you know there's like a few things to unpack there right i think there's a problem when People on, on, you know, where I was coming from, where I was just trying to make a career change and I was feeling really inspired by Pilates. The fact that it was like a $7,000 price point versus if you become a strength trainer, you know, it's a, a few hundred dollars, right? And you obviously very different, right? You don't go through as many hours. You're not inside of the studio as long, very different modality altogether, but it's a few hundred dollars. You read a textbook, you pass a test and then you find a job, right? So very different in terms of like how you apply the knowledge, but a lot more accessible, right? So if you look at strength training, you'll see a lot of different people, right? Diversity is kind of seeping through strength training in a way that it's not really seeping through to Pilates because on the practitioner practitioner end, it's easier to access that. Um, on the consumer end, you know, in New York City, I think the big problem is that it's inherently classist. Uh, so a lot of the studios are all in, you know, high income areas. Uh, and this is across the board. This is not just Pilates, but most fitness studios are in, you know, affluent areas where they can charge more they're not, they're not looking to charge less. And I agree with you that, you know, as a business owner, like I need to charge what I need to charge in order to uh, set a price point for my value and also to, you know, take care of my family. However, there also has to be, there has to, there has to be some sort of opportunity for people to move their bodies um, outside of just affluent neighborhoods. Like there has to be some sort of accessibility there. Um, you know, people have to be willing to move into neighborhoods that um, maybe not everybody looks like them. Maybe, maybe it's a different neighborhood um, or they need to do some outreach into those neighborhoods and get people to come in. They need to have a sliding scale that there, there needs to be something there set up um, so that you're getting people to move their bodies and especially people who need it the most, right? These like lower income communities are the people that need health and wellness the most. They need access to movement. They need access to healthy foods. They need access to the information in a way that, you know, the rest of us kind of take it for granted. It's just around us. It's just in our neighborhood. It's just down the block. Right. Um, Whereas, you know, they have to get on the subway or get on the bus and really travel really far to have access to good food, to have access to a farmer's market, to have access to 
fitness, right? And that's unfortunate. And I don't, you know, unfortunately, I don't know the answer for that either. Um, but but it, it's inherently classist, you know, and, and it's it's a problem. I, I, I identify that as a problem. Um, you know, sliding scales are probably the best way that I think a lot of us can contribute to people. I, I do that a lot, even with other instructors. Um, I'll offer like a sliding scale for them. And because I understand, right, they're all kind of in the same hustle. And I don't expect somebody um, who I know might not be making a ton of money to pay me the same rate as somebody who I know is definitely going to be able to pay it. And that's just the way I, I personally answer that problem. But I don't know, you know, how other people are, are kind of responding to that. And I don't know how the industry is going to respond to that, because it's something that I think that we all have to kind of take heed of and we all have to acknowledge I'm a, I'm a fan of um, uh, basically off-peak type pricing. So basically, if you know, whether it's classes or, or private clients that you see, it's like they're going to be more popular times and less popular times. And if you're, if you're, if spots in your sessions are a limited resource, which for most of us they are, like you can only see so many people at a time or whatever, then I would, you know, I'm a fan of reserving those most popular times for the people who are prepared to pay more. And then the people who... Uh, you know, can't afford that. It's like, well, if you come at, say, 10 in the morning, which where I live is sort of dead, um, you know, it's half price or quarter price or whatever the, you know, thing. But if you want to come five o'clock on a Monday afternoon, well, that's, you know, that's going to cost you. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, there's no easy answer. Um, But I think, you know, the best thing that people can do is just acknowledge that it is even a thing, right, that it's happening and that, innately around us there there's this have and have nots and they need to make themselves available in some way to people um whether that's i mean it can also be social media right you can be putting yourself out there and do 15 minute videos and and put that on youtube and and you know share your knowledge that way um so if somebody does come to you and says oh well i can't afford your prices you can always like you know funnel them towards that information because at least they have access to something um and even though it doesn't feel like that's going to give you a return right away, overall, it, it always is, right? Like overall, putting yourself out there is always going to give you some sort of sense of return. People are going to be funneled towards you and, and, and it's going to let people know that you exist. Um, but people, you know, I, I think it's up to each individual to kind of come up with a plan that's going to help them uh, answer the call, which is how do we help people that can't afford to move and need to move the most. Like, how do we help those people? We need to, we need to help them, in my opinion. But yeah, I think for for me, the the uh, what you said there sparked that actually online. I think it potentially is a great leveler here because you know in in a physical situation, your the number of clients you can see is limited by how many reformers you've got or size of your space or whatever it might be. Whereas online, you know, adding an extra person to your class doesn't stop someone else from joining your class. So if I let someone in at, you know, $5, well, that doesn't sell me, stop me selling someone else a place at $20, you know? Right. So, so I can just say, yeah, it can have a sliding scale, for example, in that online situation. Um, and the other thing is that um, the model that I actually use myself, because I don't see retail clients anymore, um, my, my business is education. And so, you know, we charge... Uh, you know, premium prices for our education because it's a premium education, but there we have a profitable business. This gives me the opportunity to do things like we're doing right now, like recording podcasts, which I spend hours each week doing for free to give back to the instructor, instructor community. And so, 
it's like, well, you can, you know, there's lots of ways, like you say, that you can do it. And I don't think any of them is perfect. But, um, yeah, I think just that mentality of, or a mi- I guess a mindfulness of, yeah, if you just kind of, uh, if you don't actively go out and engage people, there are going to be people who are going to miss out. Right. And that kind of leads me to another idea too, is that I think that there's this, um, I don't know if it's hoarding. It's like a hoarding of information. It's like people, people learn something and it's almost like they want to, they want to keep it a secret. Like, I don't want to share this information because it's mine. (laughs) It's my information. Um, and I think that that is an unfortunate way of looking at all information. Information is free. Information uh, should be shared. Knowledge should be shared. Knowledge is power. Uh, we should be willing to share what we have with other people. Um, you know, sometimes I tell people about, you know, why don't you record 15 minute, 20 minute videos? And you're like, oh, and don't charge like that. Like your time is worth something. And yes, my time is worth something, but it's important to share the information. It's not my information. I got my information from somebody else and they got it from somebody else. The information is free. It's a free resource, right? So my experience with people coaching one-on-one or, or, you know, doing business coaching or mentoring, that's all they're paying for the the experience to be with me. They're not necessarily paying for the information because the information is all out there. They can get it from anybody. They're, they're, paying for me, right? They're paying, my clients are paying to be with me because there's something about me that encourages them and keeps them going and has impacted their life, which is, you know, very different than just paying for knowledge because knowledge, we all have Google, we all have the internet for the most part, right? (laughs) The information's out there. If you want to find the information, you can have it. So we don't have to like hide it and always, you know, charge these exorbitant price points, uh, to share with other people because the knowledge, um, is, is doesn't belong to me. Anything that I've ever learned about the body, anything I've ever learned about Pilates, anything I've ever learned about strength training, mobility, anything that I've ever learned in my body does not belong to me. It's not mine. So I, it's my responsibility as a mover. It's my responsibility as a coach. And it's my responsibility as a practitioner to share that with as many people as possible, because that's, what's going to uplift the entire community community. Right. And that's going to rise all of us up or raise all of us up versus me hoarding it. And then, you know, I don't, I, what am I doing with it then hoarding it and then turning it into some program and only letting people in if they pay, you know, a thousand dollars. That doesn't make sense. Like the the information is free. You got to share the information. I think the fundamental truth that you, and I think it's a really profound one that you, that you said there is that in what you said there is that people like they could just go on YouTube and do a workout for free. Right. So Mm -hmm. why aren't they, why are they paying you a hundred dollars to come and do a workout? Well, it's because you, that's why right. they're, they're buying you. And if they come to see me, they're buying me. And it's like, yeah, they could watch my YouTube video for free. Well, great. Go, go for it. But there's, go for something, it. Exactly. there's something that you don't get from a YouTube video. Even if it's a YouTube video of me, it's not the same as a live session. You know, there's something about that for some people. Now, other people will watch the YouTube video and go, great, awesome. Got everything I wanted from that was free. Thanks very much. And that's, that's awesome. But then there are other people who watch the YouTube video and go, huh, this is awesome. Where can I get more? And then they'll come and seek you out. You know? So I think it's swings and roundabouts and, and what, what you put out, you get, you get back and you don't necessarily get it back from every individual person, but on the aggregate, I think in my experience anyway, in business is it comes back to you, you know, if, if you right. put stuff out there. And I just think the most powerful thing is people don't come to you for the information. They could get that anywhere. They come to you for, you know, the the unique 
you-ness that you bring, you know? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and that kind of ties back to the solution of the body, right? I, I think a lot of my clients come to me because I am what they would identify as a normal person with a normal body, right? I don't look like a dancer. I don't talk like a dancer. I'm not creating some sort of uh, language barrier between me and them talking about arabesque and talking about things that they have no idea what I'm talking about. Right. It's very matter of fact. Like I want you to lift your leg and do this thing and push this way. And, and it makes sense to them because it's very direct. Um, and it gives them a sense of knowing what it is that they're doing in their body. And we talk about what we're doing in the session and how that links back to what they're doing in their life. And they get to walk out feeling powerful. Um, and that's great, right? Because then they don't feel like they failed. I think a lot of times people work with coaches or they work with trainers and either the trainer keeps pushing them to a certain point where um, it's starting to feel bad, right? doesn't feel good in their body. They're put, they're, their trainer keeps trying to push them to the point where their trainer wants them to be, not where their body wants to be, but where their trainer has kind of, you know, notched off. Well, you know, now that we've gone here, we're going to progress to this point. And now that we've gone here, you're going to progress to this point, which again, that's that linear business. That's not how the body works. Um, or the trainer, you know, kind of speaks over their head and doesn't make them feel comfortable and, and they don't know what they're talking about and they feel like it's repetitive and, and eventually they just, you know, don't go back. Um, and I think that a lot of my clients stick around because again, I, I kind of speak to them in their moment, like whatever's going on in, in the moment that week, you know, however they feel that day, we're going to kind of program according to that. I might come in with a few things that I want us to work on, but if they tell me that they had a really terrible night's sleep last night, or they woke up and their neck hurts, or they, you know, are feeling antsy or anxious, or, you know, that's going to affect the way that they move. So there's going to be a lot of things that I might start to omit because we might need to just focus on breathing, right? If they're really anxious, am I going to push them really hard so they could, that they're panting and not a breath? No, that would make no sense because they're going to be feeling even worse than when they walked in, right? The first thing, especially in New York City, they're running up the stairs, going on the subway, whatnot. They need to come down from that moment. They need to lie down and they need to breathe. I just need you to breathe. I'm not even going to talk. I want you to breathe for two minutes. I'm not even going to say anything. And that, you know, sets the tone for the session because now they're connected to what I want them to do right in that moment. And their body is now going to be a lot more responsive and, and reciprocate reciprocal to like what I'm asking them to do versus me just coming in with the like arbitrary exercise, right. And being like, Whoa, here's the order. And we're going to run through the order today. And that not to judge anybody who does run through the order, like, you know, more power to you. That's the way you teach and your clients are into that, like do that. Um, but that's not what my niche is. That's not what my demographic is into. And it's really important for me to offer them a moment to like connect into their body. And that's going to look really different from day to day, you know? Um, yeah, that, that's just kind of important. So I want to, I realize, so I want to, I want to dive towards or navigate towards this idea of, you know, your niche and it's like being you and, you know, like what, what unique value do you bring as a human? Not as because you know these exercises or you know these cues or whatever, but it's like what's unique about just you as, as a human that you, the value that you bring. And so to, to kind of start moving us in the, that direction, can we, can you sort of frame up this notion of you know the illusion of the pilates body and what, what you shared with me about sort of applying for jobs and seeing the people in those jobs and all of that so yeah take it away 
So I, um, I, like I said, I, I really had no connection to my body when I first started doing Pilates. Um, you know, I worked really, really hard to try to understand the body both by practicing a lot and also reading a lot and learning about the anatomy. Um, so it took me a little longer to get through the program than some of my cohorts because they rushed through it really quick in a couple months they were teaching. Um, so I, I, I really took the time to learn stuff because I thought that that was going to be the best way for me to apply myself. Um, you know, fast forward, we get through about a year of me doing that and getting through things, feeling really confident. You know, my mentors are feeling really confident in, in what I was doing. Um, and I started applying for places and uh, it's just like dead air, right? Like no one's responding to me. Um, I have people referring me to other people. No one's responding to me. Um, you know, I had one instance where I sent a resume to somebody that had uh, been referred to me where I had been referred to them and they responded with, well, it doesn't look like you uh, have any dance in your background, um, which like, I know what my resume looks like. So yeah, duh. <laughs> like, yes, I, I, I am aware of my background. Thanks. And they were like, well, we're not interested. We only want to work with dancers, which a, like, I don't even understand why they, I would have rather have been ghosted the way that I was being with everybody else. <laughs> um, you know, like what, what the, what was the point of that? And B um, I mean, it's so, it felt really uh, petty. It felt really like, what was the, what is the value that they were trying to get out of that conversation to tell me that I wasn't, you know, at the level or, or at the experience level that they wanted me to be at. It didn't really make sense. Um, I had a couple of other instances where my mentor, like face-to-face -face introduced me to owners, um, who, you know, were like, yeah, sure. And like never reached out. Uh, and it was a struggle. Like it took me months before I found a job. Um, I was really fortunate to, to land, uh, where I landed. It was, uh, an, another studio in Manhattan in Soho called Mongoose Body Works. And, uh, the owner was amazing and she let me audition. And I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about it because every place you go, they require you to audition. So at the very least people could have just had me come in and audition before they told me that I wasn't like up to par and like, nobody would even let me audition. They wouldn't even reach out to me, which is wild. Right. Um, and if you look at, you know, the studios, you know, I've been on their websites, there's nobody that looks like me. They don't have my curves. They don't have my body type, you know? And I think that that plays into, um, the marketing, right? Like they want to have people, they all look the same. They all have like a dancer body. They're all slender. They're all white. Um, and that, I guess that works for them, you know, and that that's unfortunate that they are, you know, completely disassociating, uh, a lot of people that are in the community that are looking for jobs. Right. And again, you know, that goes back to what I was saying about Manhattan, the fact that you can even pull up any sort of studio in Manhattan and just not see anybody of color, um, on the roster, just is kind of mind boggling, uh, at this point. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I got a job and, um, and, and it was great, but you know, it, it was, it was definitely a struggle getting to that point. Um, cause I felt like I was working twice as hard as everybody else and not having anything to show for it. Um, and it didn't really make sense. You know, it didn't really, um, it made me feel like something was wrong with me. Right. Like that I, because I couldn't kick my leg up to my nose that somehow, you know, I was less than, um, because I was working really, really hard to, to figure it out. And, um, and I knew my worth, like I knew that I was good at what I was doing. Um, I just needed to be given a chance. 
Um, but that's been, you know, an overlying, uh, or maybe underlying, you know, trends now that I see like, you know, through the community, it's just, there's not a lot of representation there's just not a lot of people, uh, that look like me. And, um, you know, and that's not just, you know, race wise, but also, you know, body type, there's just not a lot of people that don't look like super slender in Pilates, it seems like, and it's, it's weird because that's not how human bodies are <laughs> like human bodies are very diverse we all look really different and um you know it, it, it's also interesting you know being being somebody who's curvier i have you know lordosis you know i i have a fat ass it is kind of who i am you know it's part of my curves right uh working with people who have never worked with uh, a body type like that and watching them trying to figure out how to get me into so-called neutral spine. Press your low back into the mat. (laughs) Right. Like trying to press my low back into the mat and like, then kind of realizing that maybe they don't realize that like, it's not that I'm not doing what they're asking. It's just that my assets are a little bit different than like what they're used to. (laughs) This is what it looks like on me. Right. And otherwise I'm in a really big posterior tilt and that's kind of like, where I am. Um, and, and yeah, like you can see that some people just aren't comfortable working with bodies that don't look like theirs. And that's unfortunate too, because again, that starts to show some of the cracks in in the foundation, right. That they haven't been exposed to a lot of variety and right. And it's not just, again, this is outside of race. It's just body type, right? Like you have a lot of people that might not be slender that walk into the Pilates studio. Um, you know, how are you, making Pilates accessible for them? You know, are you making it so that they feel comfortable in that space or, or not? Like, are they not comfortable? Are you asking them to do things that physically are going to be really challenging for them? Right. If, if I'm a bigger person lifting my legs, it's going to be really challenging for me. And maybe me laying, you know, supine with my legs above my hips, isn't the best opportunity for me to learn something about my body, right? Maybe there's a whole bunch of other things that I could be doing where I can learn to do the thing that you want me to do, right? Um, same thing with curling, right? If I have a if I have a bigger belly, right? Like you wouldn't do that to a pregnant woman. You wouldn't have her curl into a really deep, you know, uh, flexed spine. So why would you do that with somebody else who might also have, you know, a bigger middle? that's not going to be comfortable for them. And not only is it not going to be physically comfortable for them, I'd probably bet that it's not going to be mentally and like emotionally comfortable for them. And they may not want to come back because of that, because they feel uncomfortable in their own flesh and they don't want to come back and do the thing that you made them do that made them feel like they shouldn't, they shouldn't be doing this, but but it's, it's icky, right? It's an icky feeling for them. I think this, you know, I mean, when, when you tell me about that stuff about like there, there's no representation of, you know, non-white people in, that just blows my fucking mind. Like, I think, like, that, I don't have words. <laughs> like, that yeah. so I mean, funny. I think I was lucky. I was lucky because there are a couple of people that were at my school. I went to the King School um, and uh, there were a few women there that uh, were phenomenal that were, you know, another biracial woman. Her name is Marimba. Um, there's, a, you know, another woman that was Asian. Her name is Kwan. Like, these beautiful, beautiful people um that were represent representing diversity um but overall the arc yeah like when i most studios that i've ever worked at i was the only biracial person i was the only i was the only person um 
And uh, yeah, I mean, that's palpable. That's, it's very obvious. <laughs> it's, it's an obvious thing, you know? Um, and it is a little mind blowing. It is a little weird. Um, you know, it's, it's the same thing, you know, I'm, I'm sure you can kind of feel this, right? There's not a lot of men in Pilates, right? The, why, why, why? There's no good reason why there's not a lot of men, except for the fact that the language, you know, I, this is my belief, the language doesn't, the language, the exercise choices that it, it, it kind of makes men feel vulnerable sometimes, I think, or uncomfortable um, and doesn't speak to their needs, their wants and their body. Uh, and they don't come back. And more than half of my clients are men. So I already, I know that I'm like on the, you know, on the other end of that, like I'm on the outlier with my demographics because I have more men than I do women that work with me. And I think it's because I'm very matter of fact, and I don't put them into situations where I know that they're going to feel uncomfortable. And that's a huge part of it, right? A man that sits behind a desk, who's been a CEO or a board member or uh, owns a business and has never done Pilates before, sure as shit, doesn't want to lie on a mat and put his feet inside of leg springs and go full spread eagle in front of this woman that he's never met before, yeah. right? That's going to make them feel really uncomfortable. Um, and they're not going to understand it. They don't know why you're doing that to them. <laughs> they have no idea why you're doing this to them, right? It starts to feel like a little bit of an attack. Like, why am I here? Why am I don't understand this, right? And it could, yeah, like, why, why would you want to feel vulnerable when you're working out? Why? Does anybody want to feel vulnerable ever? Really? Not really. Right. Nobody wants to feel that exposed, especially in that moment. <laughs> that's a really, that's a really telling, you know, exercise that like, you know, most men, yeah, no, a 50 year old man, 60 year old man who's never done Pilates before that might not be the first exercise you want to put them in. Mm. I think this idea um, that you, that we, we, that you mentioned about, um, you know, the dance thing that also, you know, I find almost you know impossible to understand that it's like okay well i can imagine like if you're a studio that is around the corner from the ballet for example and you're all of your clients are dancers and you want instructors who are dancers because they understand the needs of dancers right i can understand why you would prefer to hire instructors who are dancers in that situation right but that's not 99% of Pilates studios, right? 99% of Pilates studios, their clients are not dancers. Their clients are regular people, office workers, you know, whatever it might be. And so, you know, the like, who gives a fuck if you're a dancer or not? Like, why is that a thing? And like you say, it's a thing because we've got this kind of cultural myth in Pilates that the, quote, Pilates body, and that it just happens to look exactly like the body of a professional ballet dancer. Um, and, you know, you were saying to me, and I, I, I couldn't agree more, that there is there's basically a real selection bias. And, like, even though most of us who teach Pilates are more like you or me, like we're not dancers, never have been, never will be, love dance, love to watch dance, <laughs> but I'm not a dancer. Um, and my body can't do the things that, dancers bodies can do and neither neither can yours and i think i'm not sure i want to (laughs) but i think that's most of us right i think most most people the majority of people who are pilates teachers that that's us you know we're not a whatever size six can can't do the splits you know all of those things i see you want to say although i think that because i'm because i'm in a container i'm in a bubble i'm in new york city Uh a lot of people are 
coming here from other places, a lot of the instructors are, are dancers. I, I would be hard pressed. I, I could probably count the ones on my hands of people that I've worked with that weren't dancers that I got into Pilates. So that's the experience that we have here, right? It's very, very um, specific to the fact that people come to New York to make it and an easy thing to support you know, what they really want to do, which is their dance career, um, is to do Pilates, right? Right. Which also changes the perspective then too on the business end, right? Because their perspective of what they're doing with Pilates um, isn't going to be like career driven. Uh That's not, that's not it, right? Like they're just doing something that makes Pilates free so that they can continue to maintain their bodies until their bodies Uh no longer can do what they want them to do, right? Until their knees blow out or whatever it is, right? Because that's usually the end of the career is that their body has gotten to a certain point and they no longer can kick their legs up or their hips can't do it or whatever it is, right? And then they have Pilates maybe to fall back on, right? If they mm-hmm. if they want to do that. Um, but Pilates is not like the end goal for them. It's not the mm-hmm. career goal for them. Like it's the supporting goal. It's like one of the mm-hmm. beams that supports their other their other goal. Yeah, where I am, uh, there's there is that, but it's a lot less prevalent. And I, my my perception, you know, all of our students in breathe education, I would say like eighty five to ninety percent of our students are not dancers, um, and and most I'd say most of the remaining ten or fifteen percent who are dancers, they're kind of like either at the end of their career and now looking for okay, what's next for me. You know, mm-hmm. ra- rather than like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm mid-career, I'm touring all the time, I need something that's going to fit in between and give me some free physical therapy to boot, you know. So I think mm-hmm. maybe that's that's largely, I mean, I've only been to New York a couple of times and mostly seen it on TV, but, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of fits my perception of New York. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're gonna make it they're gonna make it here yeah until their knee blows out <laughs> right, but, if, but if i mean i i imagine if i was in wisconsin or you know el paso or miami or whatever that might be different right and it would be more just regular right fun. yeah it would probably be different yeah I, I would assume you know i i obviously i don't know the experience at other places but mm-hmm. i would assume that people aren't moving to miami to be uh <laughs> dancers and if they are it's probably not the same kind of dancer we're talking about (laughs) but i think that on social media this is real this is amplified because it and i think there's 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 a real strong um movement you know in the other direction as well i think there's a, a, a strong presence on social media you know um, by people like uh, Nola Myberg and you know many others who are you know, promoting it's like hey if you've got a body and you do Pilates you've got a Pilates body right and, and it's okay to be whatever shape you are you know in the goal of Pilates is it doesn't have to be to change your shape to look like some other shape or anything like that right. and if you feel good in the movements and after the movements then you did it right um and it doesn't matter how graceful you look or any of that stuff. So that's all fantastic. And I'm really happy and encouraged and excited and optimistic about the future of the industry and the way that that body positive you know, message is being spread. But I think there's this, we still, uh, you know, we're not there yet. And a, a lot of the, the, the social media things that I see and that people will, co- even people commenting on each other's posts and stuff, even the compliments, a lot of them use the word like, oh, so beautiful, so graceful, so elegant, so, you know, whatever. It's like it's a performance, 
you know, like Pilates is a performance. And because it's choreography, and, right? It's choreography. <laughs> we don't we don't teach exercises. We teach choreography. It's right. a choreo, right? Remember, remember that. Someone posted actually. Someone I follow on Instagram. I'm sorry, I forget the name. I'll dig it out and and link to it in the show in show notes. So thanks, whoever posted it was. I think the physio yogi, maybe somebody. Anyway, it's it's on yoga, but I think it's just it rang so true for me on Pilates. It's a study called Practice or Performance: A Content Analysis of yoga-related videos on Instagram. And so what they did was they looked at 400 yoga-related videos um, on Instagram, and what they found that most, most of them were women in their 20s, white, thin, and toned. And videos largely featured advanced yoga flows or pose, poses, and videos were mostly performative. Very few were instructive. So it's basically just thin, young, flexible women getting up on Instagram and showing off how their cool yoga flows that they could do. It's not, not about teaching or share. It's like, it's basically just performance. Right. And that's not to critique the women, you know, and if you're, if you get on, on Instagram and do your Pilates flow, this is not to critique you. Right. I think it's, I'm more thinking it's a cultural sort of zeitgeist that we have that is still lingers about Pilates as performance you know, which, like you say, comes over, is a hangover from those dance, you know, the, the, the sort of dance origin, not really origins, but part of the origin story of Pilates part of the origins, it, yeah. is, is, is dance. And that we have this notion that, you know, how you look, you know, how gracefully you move, how your range of motion, you know, all of this kind of stuff is, is something to be critiqued or admired or aspired to. And that, and that, you know the, the the very people who are you know who are who have those characteristics who move beautifully who have long limbs and slender waists and all of those things that we all aspire to um, supposedly uh, like that Pilates didn't make them that way they got selected because they were already that way when they applied for the job right. And, and now we're promoting them as like, oh, look, what a great advertisement for Pilates. No, you're a great advertisement for your fucking genetics, you know, and probably yes, the 15 years absolutely. of ballet training you did before you came to Pilates. I mean, you know, we all hear these like horror stories too, right, of like uh, people getting yelled at for not doing the transitions correctly back in the day, you know, by I won't, I won't call out names about who, who I've heard had, had done that in their, in their teaching, but that's a big thing, right? Like, Oh, you weren't supposed to sit on the equipment a certain way. You had to get off like a lady. You had to do the transitions, you know, the transitions were part of the exercise, but all of that is setting an ideal that if you're not doing those things, if you're not learning the transitions, if you're not performing the transitions that somehow you are, not doing it right um and that can't that can't be the ideal like the if people are coming in because they're just trying to move and they're just trying to learn about their bodies or they just don't want to be in pain anymore or they just need 50 minutes with somebody to like help them get through exercise um we can't set these ideals up for them where they're like we're like you need to look this way and like you didn't do it right go back on there and then get off the right way right like what get off, get off the box, <laughs> sit down, stand up. It doesn't matter. It doesn't literally, none of that stuff matters, but we have these seeds in these students' minds, right? Um, when they're first coming up into the program that like somehow that stuff matters, that these aesthetics matter. Um, and they kind of don't. 
in my opinion, anyway, right? There might be people out there that, you know, agree, disagree with me very strongly and they believe that it matters and the transitions are everything and, you know, more power to them. You know, I'm, I'm, we don't have to agree on everything, but I don't believe that I, that it's appropriate for me to tell somebody that they've set up the wrong way. Yeah. And I think even, <laughs> even when we compliment people, like you say, like where we say, oh, you know, what a beautiful practice you have, or, you know, how, how graceful you, it's like, yeah, there's a, there's kind of a, an implicit opposite to each of those, right? So if, if I say to you, what a beautiful practice you have, well, that implies that, you know, beauty is in a practice, you know, in movie is something to be aspired to. And mm. so then if you're looking at yourself practice one time in the mirror and you go, gee, I look like a freaking elephant when I do this, it's like, well, that must be bad then, right? If it's not beautiful, mm. you know, and, and it's like, yeah, so should, could we just stop admiring those, <laughs> those qualities and just say, hey, Those encourage things. people's effort and their, you know, their, their, their improvements in strength and, you know, like, yeah. Or the fact that they just showed up. That's yeah. such an important thing. Like, I don't know what the statistics are in Australia, but I know here that about 75% of the population does not work out. Yeah. Um, so the fact that people are just showing up, right? Like sometimes you have clients that come in and they're like, oh, I feel so weak. Oh, I feel right. Klutzy. I feel, I don't feel graceful. Oh, I, I can't get this. I don't understand this exercise. I can't get it in my body. I can't figure it out. You showed up. You have to reassure these people. They showed up, you showed up. And just by showing up, you did something and that's powerful. Like you, you showed up. That's great. What, what else do you need to do? You tried. That's okay. Right. It's okay. If your feet slip off the bar, when you're trying to do parakeet, that's okay. You got a cramp. You fell down. Guess what? There's a cushion underneath you. It didn't hurt. <laughs> I'm like, that's okay. You know, like, it's okay. If you can't do the thing that I'm asking you to do, it's okay. If I, if you don't know what you're doing and I demonstrated and yours doesn't look like mine, we have different bodies and I have to remind people of that. Like, it's okay. You don't need to look like me. You don't, you have your own body. You don't want my body. <laughs> Trust me. You don't want my body because I have my own issues too. Right. Um, and I think that as practitioners, it's really important for us to remind people that just showing up is a really um, amazing feat. And remind them of those statistics that you, that, that is a thing that like other people aren't moving, particularly if you're working with older folks, right? If you're working with somebody, you know, beyond the age of 65, 70, and they're like, oh, I feel so weak. You showed up. Do you think that all of your friends, your cohorts, your colleagues are sitting on a wonder chair today? Probably not. Nah. Right. Most of their neighbors are not moving around like that. Mm. Right. Most other people, their age and their seventies are not doing the things that they're doing. So that's, that's amazing. Like take, take acknowledgement in the fact that you're here doing some really hard stuff. Pilates is not easy. Exercise is not easy. And listening to somebody bark at you for an hour <laughs> and replicating what they're asking you to do is also not easy. It's, it's, it can be challenging, you know? Um, and then, you know, the other thing I'm thinking of too, is my own experience. There was a time, I think like two or three years into my Pilates experience. Uh, so when I first started having doing Pilates, um, before I even became a instructor, I started having hip pain. Um, and basically the way the doctor talked about it was that my psoas was giving out. Like I would sit down it could be for five minutes. It could be for an hour. I could go to sleep, whatever it was, but I would stand up and put weight into my dominant leg, into my right leg. And I'd literally fall. Like my, my leg would give out underneath me. Um, cause apparently I was so, it was so overworked or something that it was, it was just not turning on when I stood up, um, which is kind of scary, you know, 
Um, but I was, you know, starting to Pilates and starting to go through the MAP program. And I finally went to a PT and they said, oh, you're doing Pilates. So keep doing the Pilates and you'll be fine, which did kind of help. You know, he told me which exercises to do and, and, and it helped. Um, and then about two years into teaching, suddenly my back went out one day. I bent over, I stood up, my back went out. And it went out for about eight or nine months. So it was, it was a constant dull pain. It actually felt better just to stand up and teach all day because if I sat down, I had tailbone pain. If I laid down, my back would hurt. If I went to stand up, my hip would be all, all uncomfortable. Um, and I would just revert back to trying to do Pilates, right? I was like, the doctor told me that this would be fine. And I would try to do things and, and you know, start to feel a little better. And then I'd lay on my back and try to lift my legs above my hip and my back would go out again. And so then I would, you know, kind of, ease through that and try to rehab it in whatever ways I thought I knew what I was doing. And it, it was just this ebb and flow of like kind of feeling better than it go out and kind of feeling better. And then it went out and that's what introduced me to strength training. Uh, and my trainer at the time was like, you, he hated Pilates. He still does. <laughs> um, he's a lovely, lovely person. I, I, I adore him, but he really, really does not like Pilates. And he basically was like, don't lift your legs above your hips, period. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I was like, but that's all, that's like all of Pilates is lifting my legs above. He said, don't do it. You, you're not strong enough to lift your legs above your hips. You don't know how to hold tension that way. Don't do it. Um, which kind of set off this whole new understanding of not lifting my legs, how to get through the choreo, how to get through the exercises. And then projecting that onto my clients that were coming in and saying, well, my back hurts, right? I have back pain where I just stopped having them lift their legs above their hips. And guess what? They didn't have any back pain anymore. Like it completely changed and shifted my experience with Pilates and with bodies. And I was doing a lot of the things that he was doing with me, with them on the equipment. And it completely changed everything. And I was in this really small studio where I had all these other Pilates instructors, a lot of them dancers, a lot of them, you know, more classically trained, whatever that means. Um, and they were just like, she doesn't teach Pilates. You know, it was like the whisper. She doesn't, she doesn't teach Pilates. She just does, she does whatever she wants to do. But like my people weren't in pain anymore Yeah. and they would walking into the studio in pain. Isn't that the goal? Mm. They asked for my help. That was the solution. And that's the solution that worked for me. So why as a practitioner who was experiencing something in my body, would I not share that same information with other folks? I put them into a situation where I knew it was making their bodies feel uncomfortable. That that was the idea, right? Like it's that we're trying to help people feel better about themselves. So why, why, why do I have to shove the hundreds down their throat? Why, why do they have to do the hundreds? Why do you have to do the hundreds? Tell me. Well, I've got a theory on this. It's just a theory, <laughs> but that in, in our industry, you know, we, t we have, a, there are many people, I, I think almost my guess is almost everyone feels like they have something they want to add, you know, to the, to the way that they teach, you know, some unique twist interpretation, addition, you know, fusion with something else, whatever it might be, that they want to add to the way, you know, inject into the place and leave their mark on the, on their clients with their own flavor. But I think most of us feel, you know, some degree of imposter syndrome, unworthiness. If I do that, you know, people, you know, they we're worried about being sort of socially, you know, rejected and isolated. 
and that, you know, we won't be approved of by the, you know, by the majority, right? And and thus we kind of, you know, scroll through liking things on Instagram of 22-year-old ballerinas doing the splits in the parakeet and whatever it might be. And, and, and I think that's a lot, a lot of, a lot of people would want to do what you, what you do, but are, you know, don't feel confident enough to say when someone, you know, looks at them funny, just go, well, fuck you. You know, I'm doing it. I'm doing it my way. Fuck off. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of that goes back to the training as well. I don't know that a lot of people are given the permission to explore, you know, and the permission to modify and the permission to omit things. Um, and I'm really fortunate that the training I went through was really rehab based and we talked about special populations. So it was always an underlying thing that like, you have to learn how to, uh, teach a corrective exercise just in case you get a body in front of you that just can't do the things. And you also have to know how to teach a fitness exercise or a fitness session, rather, you know, a corrective session, a fitness session, depending on the person. And maybe it's a blend of both, but you know, you need to figure that out. And that requires critical thinking when it comes to the exercises, you need to take an exercise and be able to break it apart at its most basic levels. Right. And if, if whatever doesn't serve the person uh, is in there, just take it out, right? Like if, if somebody has, right, back, maybe you're just not going to lift their legs above their hips. Maybe that's the, the case, right? Maybe if they have spondylolisthesis, you're not going to do a ton of extension. Maybe, you know, if they, you know, have a shoulder impingement, you're going to modify, you know, what arm exercises you're doing. But, you know, I don't know that a lot of the other, and obviously I don't know because I haven't gone through other trainings, but I don't know how many other trainings are saying, Hey, let's break down every single exercise to their most basic parts so that you as the practitioner know how to rebuild a session based on the body that's really in front of you and kind of explore and figure out, you know, all the different moving terrain that you can play with. Um, I don't know that that information is like readily available to people. And then I think that, yeah, like they go out into the world and they start working with bodies and it's uncomfortable because they don't know anything else. They only know what was taught to them. And this idea of omitting or modifying um, tabletop isn't the only modification out there. There's a lot of other modifications, (laughs) you know, and, and um, yeah, I, I don't know that they know that. And I don't know that they know that they can explore and do things that might not look like Pilates um, with bodies in front of them. And sometimes it's the place that you're working at. Like I've worked at bigger gyms where, you know, we were told we have to teach authentic sessions. I don't know what that means, authentic, because I just taught the way I taught anyway. Um, but we weren't supposed to do anything that wasn't authentic, you know, and, and that's such a asinine like what's authentic what's what yeah who who spoke to joe like who knows like joe did joe call you and tell you well here's i mean here's the thing like (laughs) joseph pilates was a fucking innovator you know he constantly made up new shit you know like you just watch his videos teaching at jacob's pillow he's constantly coming with new equipment ideas like he evolved his thinking and if he was still alive today i I'm pretty sure he wouldn't be teaching exactly the same way he was teaching, you know, 80 years ago. You know, no, and- absolutely not. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, no. Hey, imagine this. When you meet a new client, you know exactly what to do. 
you're confident because you already have a plan, a plan that's so powerful and versatile that you can use it with any client, big clients, small clients, clients with pain in weird body parts, clients with diagnoses ending in itis, osis, or opathy, clients with neurogenic pain, whatever that is. Well, actually, neuro just means nerve and genic means produced by. So neurogenic pain is just pain that is produced by nerves. Anyway, clients with balance issues, clients with pain in any body part or in many body parts, all with this one weird trick. No, I'm just joking. There is no one weird trick, of course, that's going to solve everybody's problems. But if you come and study with us in our Diploma of Clinical Pilates, you will genuinely learn how to help people with all of those issues that I mentioned, plus many more. You'll learn a deep understanding of how the human body works and of modern pain science and evidence-based best practice. And you'll learn how to apply that knowledge to genuinely help people with their musculoskeletal issues. This is a one-year in-depth program. I would love to have you in the program. It's 100% online no travel required at all. You can do it totally from your lounge room. If you're interested, I'd love to have you come and join us. Click on the link in the show notes and I look forward to seeing you in class. Go on, click on the link. Um, I think yeah, what you said there about permission really resonates with me. And I, I agree with you that like, I think in, in, well, in my original training in Stop Pilates, I was enculturated like this is the way, you know, capital T, capital W. And not, hey, there are other ways, but they're wrong. It's like there was there was no other way. You know, it's like when you're a kid, you just take it for granted. Whatever your parents do is just reality. And that's what, when I was a kid in Pilates, that's what I, <laughs> that's what I learned. And I think a lot of people have that experience. And so we, we're enculturated to like, okay, there's a correct way and, and then there's the ways that you don't do it. Yeah. And so I think that's really sad and, you know, I would like to send out a plea to all, <laughs> all Pilates educators to like stop that fucking shit and teach people, you know, that they have autonomy and that they have agency and that they can make shit up and change it. Um, but I would also like to say to the to the Pilates instructors of the world, like you don't need someone to give you permission to to do shit, right? You just right. decide to do it. But if you do need someone to give you permission. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna ask you, Laura, if if both of us together can just give everyone listening permission to just do whatever's in their heart and mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, explore, explore the shit out of Pilates. Like, there's so many things, there's so many options, and there's so many ways that you can impact people's lives if you just believed that the things that you're doing can actually change their lives. And it doesn't have to look like the thing that somebody taught you. It can be something that you create. You could create your own shit. It's amazing. We're creative. That's the thing is that we're not at our core Pilates instructors, fitness instructors, all of us are creative people. We're, we're coming up with flows of, of movement and exercise and if we hold ourselves back and we like bound ourselves to this, to this chain, this order, right. Um, we're only selling all of us short, right. We're selling the experience short. We're selling the body in front of us short because there's so many things that could help somebody figure something out. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and that's how things work in real life anyway. Right. Like I'm 
moving around and twisting and, and exploring and the terrain underneath me is never, I'm in New York, especially, right? Like, so the terrain is never the same, right? There's cobblestone and there's flat ground and, you know, there's tilted ground and all this. My body has to figure out how to explore all those options without falling flat on my face. So why am I not doing the same thing when I teach somebody movement, right? I need to teach them the same thing four different ways with the terrain being really different underneath them so that they have all these options, right? I have like these really fascinating stories from my clients. I'm, I'm always encouraging people to fall. I'm just like, just fall, <laughs> just, just fall. The worst thing that happens is you, you fall right on this cushion. Um, but they carry that out into the world. I have a, a gentleman who's 62, I believe he rides his bike all over New York city. Um, in the winter, he fell over his handlebars. And while he was in midair, who is he thinking of? Little me saying, just fall. And he went flying face first into the floor. No scratches, no bruises, no injuries. He just let himself go. He just let it go because he was like, she told me just to fall. That's amazing. That's amazing, right? Because I kept encouraging him freestyle, right? In the studio, if you fall, you fall. What's the worst thing that happens? There's a cushion underneath you. You're not going to hurt yourself. You're in a safe space. I love that metaphor of the different terrain. And, you know, why, you know, why would you walk the same on a slanted cobblestone that you would on a flat, you know, tarmac, for example. And what a, what a beautiful parallel to the way that we teach Pilates is like, why would you teach Pilates the same and even use the same exercise or the same cues to a, you know, 19 year old dancer that you would to a 65 year old sedentary person who, you know, works in an office. You You can't. Yeah, you can't. And then, you know, it goes back to, you know, saying, talking about cues, that's a whole other thing, right? Like we, we, I think I've heard you say it in one of your podcasts in the past about the parroting, right? You have a lot of people that just like say things because they heard somebody else say it. And so they're melting hearts and shining hearts and, you know, <laughs> I don't know, doing all sorts of things with their hearts and, and you know, just it, none of it is going to, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I know what they want me to do, but to a regular person out in the world, yeah. if I had just said, melt your heart, melt your heart into the map shine your heart forward that doesn't that's not physical that doesn't tell me what i'm supposed to do with my body and it's going to leave me feeling really confused um you know one of my clients says why why does my other instructor tell me to sit crisscross applesauce (laughs) right instead of just saying sit down and cross your legs thank you because they want them to sit down and cross their legs and they don't want to say indian style i guess they're trying to be pc why don't you just say cross your legs Thank you. I don't know. So this is, you know, the mysteries of the world. These are simple things. Just put your foot on the bar, lift your arm towards the sky, you know, take your arms two inches wider, pull them closer together, push into the thing, pull the thing towards you. That's, that's all you have to say. All this other fluff, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And we've all, I'm sure you've been there. I've been there. And I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this have been there where you spend so much time talking those first two years that your mouth is dry and you're exhausted. You get through two hours and you're like, Oh my God, do I have to teach another three hours? How am I going to make it? It's because you're filling up the space. Why? You don't need, you don't need to talk that much. Lie down, put your feet on the bar, push, bend your knees. I just saved so much of my breath and my time. I just added years to my life, (laughs) like years, right? And it makes it a lot more clear and accessible to the person in front of me because I'm not talking about these ethereal heart openers and 
things that don't exist reach towards the sky like you're going to touch the cloud above you what (laughs) i'm not going to touch the cloud though i'm not a bird what are you talking about (laughs) what what a queuing masterclass you just gave i'm just going to give a clap (laughs) because just before that there like when you said about just push you know lie down push lift the bar like those are the exact sort of cues that are most effective. And like you say, they're also easier for the instructor. They're easier for the client, easier for the instructor. And it's, yeah, that's a that's a masterclass you just gave there in like one minute on how to cue. And I think that this is also why I have more men than your average Pilates instructor in terms of my demographic. Um, because the male brain, from what I understand, and I might be speaking very loosely now, uh, they uh, take information in uh, in terms of like direction if it's just clear and easier, right? They multitask. So you have to be very clear with men where you're just like, put your feet on this bar and push out. Most men are, are, are just not going to understand you if you're like filling up the space with a lot of words. It's just words. It's just words. It's a lot of words that don't need to be there. Um, and I think that that's why I tend to have a, bigger demographic of men than like your average bear, right? Is that I'm just very matter of fact, push up, pull up, push out, stand up, put your leg here. Mm. So, all right. So and what then, because I, I want to see if we can really get to the crux of, so if you're using, you know, this comes to kind of the idea of, you know, adding value really like, so, all right. So if people aren't coming to us, for the list of exercises that we give them because they could just go to YouTube and get that list of exercises. Um, and if they're not even coming to us necessarily for the quality of our cues, because, well, one, they could go and play at any time for $12 a month and get the world's best instructors. I'm not saying they're better than you, but they could get the cream of the cream, right, for $12 a month, presumably with the best cues in the world, right? So why are they coming to you for like 10 times that price to get, push or lift the bar, you know? So what is it, what are you adding that is worth that much to those people? Uh, For my clients specifically, I think that we are adding um, autonomy, right? They leave learning something about their body, Um, whatever that may be, you know, it, it might be a feeling of just feeling confident that they were able to move that day and they felt successful. So, um, right, so, so can we unpack that just a little bit? So how do you foster mm-hmm. that for your clients? Uh, I always tell them, I encourage them the, the entire time um, that they're doing great, that that was really hard, that they did great, um, that it's okay if they feel like they don't really know what I'm asking them to do, that they're still doing great, right? Like just reinforcing this idea that you're doing just fine because um, I think that sometimes they don't, believe that they're doing fine because they don't look like the Instagram person or they don't have the big muscles or they see someone across the way doing candlestick and they're like, I don't want to do that. It's like, well, why would you think we're going to do that? We're not. You're just trying to figure out how to stand up. Right. So just (laughs) like just allowing them to feel um, confident in themselves. Right. I think it's a big thing that I I do. I'm always reassuring them um, that they're doing, they're doing a, a great job. Um, I also talk a lot about what they're doing outside of Pilates. Um, and I think that that encourages them to come back. So, 
you know, some of my, I have a, I have a drummer. We tend to talk about how, what we're doing can help her with her drumming. Uh, I have a bike rider, a few bike riders. We talk about, you know, options. We're just trying to create a lot of options for your hips and, you know, thinking about then how they're uh, riding their bike, how they're pushing into the pedal, what their feet feel like, what their knees feel like, right. So that they start to get this different kind of feedback um, and, and, encouraging them to think about their bodies when they're doing these things that they probably never really thought about their bodies before. Like a lot of like planting that seed, like start to think about what you're doing when you're doing stuff. Um, and then a lot of my clients come to me because they're dealing with pain. It could be generalized pain. Some of them um, pathology, maybe they, you know, had back surgery. Um, and so with those individuals, we, I tend to speak in terms of progress um, so, you know, do you remember when I first asked you to do this exercise three months ago and they'll be like, oh yeah, I couldn't do it. Right. So progress, like we're always like checking in and saying like, can, do you see the arc? Do you see that we take a lot less breaks now? Right. Do you see that the flow is kind of going a little bit more in a moderate pace or a faster pace versus maybe having to take a lot of breaks. Right. Um, I have a lot of, uh, pregnant clients. I just had a client that gave birth at 40 weeks and five days and it was another person that gave me feedback. She gave birth. And then the first person she's thinking of afterwards, because she pushed for 12 minutes was me. And she said, all that breathing, all that breathing, then the pelvic floor stuff that you were talking about. She's like, I only pushed for 12 minutes. And I thought of you like, thank you. Right. So little things like that, just kind of planting these seeds of being really aware of what their body is capable of and all the options that they have. Um, and assuring them that even if they don't understand what the fuck I'm talking about, that we're still planting the seed and maybe something will grow and just like, you know, keep at it, plant the seed, see what grows, you know, like if it goes over your head, that's fine. And you don't have to understand everything that I'm saying. Um, but just encouraging them. I think that's why my clients come to me is it's a lot of encouraging, uh, feedback and, also allowing them to learn to listen to the feedback from within their own bodies in ways that I don't know that they've given themselves permission or maybe they just haven't thought of doing before. Um, yeah, I think that that's, that's kind of where, where I am as, a, as an instructor. It's just a lot of like confidence building and a lot of reassuring and allowing them to explore. It all goes back to the exploration, right? options and, and like Pilates is so different right Pilates is, and that's the thing that's really fun about it. and I think that's the part that like really um keeps me tethered to it even though I have all these other you know things in my toolbox is that it's the only modality that I know that we can really explore with all this equipment that's really unique right like we can like move the terrain around and change the way it feels and kind of the environment changes and I can ask you to do you know, a single leg squat with your foot crossed over your thigh, you know, on a, on a foot bar, I can have you do it standing. I can have you do it on a, on a squishy mat. I can have you do it in like all these different ways. And it's going to feel different in all those different ways. And some of those things are going to be easier than others, but it still plants the seed of this very specific movement that I want you to try to figure out. And then that, and that's the thing you get to carry with you. Like, Oh, I figured it out. I feel my, whatever I can like feel the stretch. Oh, my balance got better. Oh, I can do it here, but I can't do it there. It's just all this exploration that I feel like we can't get in a lot of other modalities. Well, I love, I love everything you said there about encouragement and building autonomy and you know, noticing what progress people have made and pointing it out to them. And, yep. and just giving them, them space to be like, okay, I know, I know you feel like you're not getting this right now, but let's just keep mucking around with it and 
you know, see what see what happens, and and just giving people permission to explore and and not look like the girl across the corridor doing candlestick, um, or not even right. do candlestick, um, and yeah, I, I I love everything you said there. I think that's 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 why you're popular, and that's why your clients stay, and that's why they you know I imagine they refer people. Because mm-hmm. that's you know everything you talk to there actually is not really Pilates; it's the human experience, right? That right. <laughs> that you're dealing with. And even conversely to that, you know, giving them permission not just to explore the movement, but also giving them permission to say, "I don't want to do this," because I find that a lot of my younger clients are coming to me because something happened to them in CrossFit, um, or again, generalized pain somewhere, or they feel like they're plateauing and. Um, or they, you know, tour muscle, whatever it is, right. They're coming in cause they have a problem and they want to have a solution to it. But the more we get into it, right. The more we start to build our relationship, I realize that they go to these classes, they go to these CrossFit classes or even group classes or whatever it is. And they put, they feel it. They know that they're starting to hit that edge. They're starting to go right past the edge where it starts to feel uncomfortable in their body. So they know right before they hurt themselves, they know that they're about to fuck their body up. If you talk to them, they'll, they'll be like, I know, I know when I did it. They know, they know, they know it com- it's coming on and they feel bad because they don't want to be the only person that sits out right? while everybody else is pushing themselves real hard. They don't want to be the outlier. They don't want to be the person that says, I know that I can't do this. So I'm just going to sit here and do a child pose, which like, that's more powerful. Like you knowing that your body can't do the thing that everybody else is trying to push through is going to give you more power because you're going to walk out and be like, oh. I didn't hurt myself today versus pushing yourself through because you see all these people that like very well may not be doing it with, with good form or whatever. Right. Like you don't know their experience and you don't know if they're walking out and feeling pain either. Um, but you know, or, give yourself or maybe permission. They've been, maybe they've been building up to it for 20 years and you just walked into weeks ago, right? You haven't heard right, the right you know, to do that yet. You haven't, and it's okay to say this exercise is not for me. Right. And I had to learn that as an instructor too. I would take classes and, you know, they would be doing advanced stuff and I would try to push myself to do it. And it's okay for me not to do exercises that make me feel uncomfortable because the end goal of me moving my body is that I want to feel powerful and I want to feel confident. I don't want to end the class limping. I don't want to end the class rubbing my neck and not knowing what I had done to myself and neither do your clients. Your clients don't want to go to a class and, and, pull any muscle. They don't want to leave and not be able to walk for two weeks. That's not the goal. They went there because they want to have fun. So you have to give them permission to, to understand their body and know their limits and say, okay, well you hit your edge and that's okay. Right. And they can turn to me and say, I think I'm hitting my edge. This is, this is feeling a little challenging for me. And then we just move on. I'm not going to keep pushing them to do the thing because they're, they know that their body no longer can do the thing, which is really different then an exercise just being really hard and they don't want to, then they're shaking and they're like, Oh, this is really hard. Yeah. Well then you can, you can breathe through that and you can suffer a little bit longer, but if it feels like uncomfortable, right. In a, in a bad way, like you're starting to feel pain or pinching, then yeah, we just move on and that's okay. And it doesn't mean that your experience was any less and it doesn't mean that you're any, you know, that, that your body is not as strong. It just means that that isn't the exercise for you today and we move on. I love that on a couple of levels, the, you know, how you're empowering people to make that call themselves and to just make that distinction between like, yeah, okay, this kind of hurts because it's hard work. It's like, okay, we'll just suck it up and keep going versus yeah, um, this just doesn't feel good. 
you know, to me in, and, and you're empowering them to make that call. And, and that, you know, hugely supports their autonomy. And uh, the, the second thing is, uh, you know, like I think there's, there's something I see from time to time, you know, floating around the social meme space that says something like, you know, that exercise that you, you hate the most, that's the one you need to do the most sort of thing. And I think, you know, sometimes there's some truth in that, right? So for instance, if I really suck at push-ups because I've got weak arms, well, maybe doing some push-ups wouldn't, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for me, you know? But, you know, I think there's a lot more nuance in it than people, than people often sort of imply there because like, well, maybe I hate that exercise because the shape of my hip socket just doesn't permit me to get into that position, no matter how much I stretch. <laughs> and right. I freaking hate it. And just making me do it is just going to make me hate coming to your class. <laughs> right? And then you wonder why you're not retaining people. <laughs> right? If people don't feel comfortable, they're not going to come back. Yeah, you have to, you know, there's a certain ebb and flow of giving people what they want because it makes them feel good and then projecting what you want them to do because it makes you feel good as the practitioner and you need to learn how to intersect those two things. And most of the session, because these people are coming to you with really specific goals usually, um, kind of has to be catered towards like their goals and what they want because they're the consumer. You could trickle a little bit of that fairy dust in there where you're like, well, this is the exercise I want them to do, but you have to know your limits. You have to know your person. You have to set up that relationship. Like a bigger part of all of this is that I have really strong relationships with my clients and it starts from day one of me, like learning about what they're doing with their bodies on a regular basis, because it has nothing to do with just, knowing what their goals are and whether or not they lift weights, right? Like it has more to do with what are they doing with the other 23 hours of the day? How do they sleep? Are they sleeping on their side? Do they have kids? Do they have grandkids? You know, do they sit all day? Do they walk around all day? How do they sit? Like just observe, like even just observing how they're taking off their shoes, just observing how they move, right? Is really, how do they walk towards the studio? Walk out with them, see how they walk down the stairs. That's going to give me more information about what I need to do with them than like just running exercises or just going through, you know, a, a, a random questionnaire and onboarding of like, well, you know, what exercises do you like to do? That that's only going to be a piece of the pie. That's, that's their, what they think they, 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 they words. That's what they think they want. And then you have to also observe and figure out all the other elements of their body by talking to them. You have to like learn to speak to people about what they're doing with their days. Yeah. And often once you get someone moving, it's like, well, they might try something they've never tried before. And so if you've asked them, hey, do you want to do A, B, and C? They'll be like, oh, no, because they don't even know what it is. But right. once they do it, they're like, oh, this is awesome. You know, like, can we do more of this? Yeah. My favorite thing is like people coming in and being like, I want to do the thing. <laughs> the thing that like my arms are behind me and the thing, and I'm like opening my chest. And I'm like, you know, that you're talking about many, many things. <laughs> they're like on that thing over there, the, the chair, you know? And I'm like, Oh, you want to do a teaser on the chair? Okay. We can do that. <laughs> the thing, you know, they don't. And that's the other thing too, about, you know, younger or, um, uh, you know, instructors that are, they're coming through that are newer is that you can't expect your clients to know, uh, what, you know, what, you know, about the exercises. This was something that was really tough for me when I first started. Um, I was always wondering, I had, why is it that we're still doing 
you know, beginning exercises. Like, why can't, it was just like the, the expectation I had for myself. Why can't I get past these exercises to these more advanced exercises? Like, am I teaching something wrong? Is there something wrong with the way that I'm presenting these exercises to people? Um, and I, you know, spoke to a mentor and they were like, that's because you're projecting onto them what you think that they should be doing when like you're not actually seeing the body in front of you. So that was like a hard lesson to learn, right? Is that like these exercises, they, they aren't sitting in a studio for four hours going through the choreography. They're not practicing that way. Um, you know, they don't know what a teaser is. They might be able to anticipate some of what you're asking if you do enough of the same thing over and over again, but they don't really know what you're doing and what they're, what they're expected to do. Like, that's why you're getting paid. Like (laughs) that's why you're the instructor. That's why you're the coach, right? Like you're, you're leading them through the movements. Um, and we have to remember and be really kind to our clients that like, just because they're in there two times a week or three times a week, they still, we can't expect them to know what we want them to do with their bodies outside of maybe a little bit of homework that you send them off with or, um, you know, the activities that they already feel comfortable doing, right. You have to like teach them if you want them to know things and you have to really like drill it into them. If you want them to like walk out and know exactly what a teaser is, but we can't expect them to just know just because we've done it, you know, for a few months or a few years, even right. Like not everybody, I can say the word teaser to any of my clients and they'll be like, what, you know, <laughs> cause it's not, it's not their business to know. They're not, it's not their profession. They don't need to know that they need to, they just need to move. They just need to move. And then again, if you want to give them some homework, you know, give them a little bit of homework, record it for them, but don't set these expectations up. Like they're supposed to remember the exercises that you're doing with them. That's not their job. That's your job. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, a lot of us as instructors know this kind of intuitively anyway, it's like, I can't, you know, count the number of instructors who say to me, like, oh, when I work out, I like to go to someone else's session and take someone else's session rather than just work out by myself at home because I want someone to tell me what to do. You know, I tell people, (laughs) you know, I lead people through movement all day for a living. I don't want to leave myself through movement. I want someone else to to do that for me. And I guess that's how a lot of our clients feel, right? It's like they're, they're, a lot of them, they're, they're busy exercising their sort of control and authority and expertise and knowledge and competence throughout their day in their profession, they, they don't want her become an expert in exercise. You know, that's what they're paying you for. Like, right. They just want to feel better. Yeah. They just want to feel better. And a lot of them just don't want to feel uncomfortable. A lot of them, and a lot of times they just want companionship to a certain degree, yeah. right? They just want to be in the room with people. Like I have some of my clients have been working with me for, you know, seven plus years now that's a really long-term relationship and they've gone through many changes physically and, and emotionally, right? The many, 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 many changes. Um, I would dare to say that at this point, you know, these long-term relationships are more um, emotional than they are, you know, just the, the physical aspect of it. We're not doing anything groundbreaking. These people, you know, I, I know their bodies at this point. We're not we're not moving into, you know, gymnastics, right? Like that's, that's not the goal for them. They just want somebody that they can trust, somebody that they know, uh, somebody that they like to spend their time with to help them maintain their bodies, period. Um, And I think that that's really important to remember is that people just want to be in the space with you. And so again, encouraging yourself to create a relationship that's maybe a little bit more than just about the goals and the order, right? And like asking them, questions about what they do and, and, and really trying to dig into who they are as individuals, it's going to set off a whole different 
um, longevity, right? It's going to really help you retain people. Obviously, this is a little bit more for one-on-ones. You may not be able to do that so much in the group class, um, but you're you're going to affect this person's life possibly for decades, yeah. depending, right? And and the reason why I think some people don't retain people is that they fail to have that connection, um, and so the person gets what they want out of however many sessions that they they get, and then they move on to the next person. Um, because they're not having that kind of like uh, relationship building with them and maybe they're not then impacting their life in the way that you really have the ability to as a Pilates instructor, in my opinion, anyway. So tell me just before we finish, because I think this is, you know, really a great insight. How do you, you know, I, I think what you said is so important about, you know, when people first start Pilates, okay, they want to get rid of their back pain or build their strength or, you know, whatever it might be. It's like you're not going to just keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger forever, right? So if I come to you and do six weeks of Pilates, I'm going to get stronger. But six years later, I'm not going to be like a hundred times stronger than I was today, right? I'm not, at, Imagine. <laughs> at some point, at some point, I've already got stronger, and I'm now I'm I I need to stay strong, right? I need to stay mobile, but it's it's more about maintenance, and so. Mm-hmm. It's less about sort of goal setting and all of that stuff, and, and and it's about the relationship. And so, like you're saying, it's about you know building you know meaningful relationships with these people who are your clients, and and caring about their lives and the names of their kids and grandkids and and all of that stuff. So, how do you draw? Where do you draw the boundary between that? Because that's not quite the same thing as becoming their friends like their bffs right i'm assuming that you don't you know take calls from your clients at midnight or you know like so there's a boundary there then they're not your friends but it is nevertheless it's a valuable and important relationship i don't just mean financially valuable i mean like it's you know emotionally it's an important relationship but it's a client relationship so how do you how do you create that boundary I think that the most important thing is that you need to know what you're comfortable with. Um, you know, you need to know your, your own boundaries, right? So I don't take text messages after a certain time, uh, for my clients. So that's one way of cutting them off. Um, you know, my clients know that I may not respond to them for 24 plus hours. Right. And that's another way of like, just don't make yourself readily available, I guess, is a big part of it. Um, you know, know what your client's, uh, preference is for contact because they also are going to have boundaries and they may not want you to text them. Um, so if they don't want you texting them, then don't do it. Uh, if they don't want you emailing them, then don't do it. (laughs) Uh, you know, under, but again, that comes back to that. That is part of the relationship building is that you have to be really upfront with what your boundaries are. You can text me if you're going to late cancel, but um, outside of that, I may not answer your text messages, right? Uh, please email me instead. Or, uh, you know, my email, I actually have like a little blurb at the bottom. You know, I, te- I check my emails about three times a day. Most responses are in a 24-hour turnaround. That sets a boundary for my clients, right? So my clients know that I'm not going to just be readily available to them um, at all times. So I think that just being really forthright with that information is the first step. Um, you know, knowing what you're comfortable talking about is also another part of it. You know, you, 
um, you could just not answer questions or kind of move into a different conversation. If people are asking questions that you don't want to respond to, um, you don't owe anybody any information. So if they are asking you about, you know, I, I recently had a child, you know, if they're asking me questions about Renee, I, I might say, yeah, like, how is he? I say, he's perfect. That's my response every single time anybody answers because he is. Um, <laughs> but I say he's perfect. And then we move on. And that's, that's it. That's my boundary. Right. Um, and, you know, if they want to see pictures of him, I, I may show them a picture, but I don't put him on Instagram. I don't put him on social media. That's another boundary that I have. And so my clients are only going to have access to his photos if they're in the space with me. Right. Even though they're really, really interested about my kid. Um, you know, schedule wise, you know, I'm, I'm very strict with my schedule. I think that's another part of relationship building. Um, and that definitely came more so out of a necessity because I had a child, um, and also, you know, a little growth post COVID, uh, pre COVID, if you wanted to meet with me at 6 PM on a Wednesday after I had been in the city since 7 AM, I might run back and forth between Manhattan and Brooklyn and then go back to Manhattan and then come back to Brooklyn and have this really outrageous, you know, 14, 15 hour day. I don't do that anymore. If you want to see me, here are my hours. If that does not work for you, then I guess, you know, you're shit out of luck. I don't know what to tell you. Like you're just not gonna you're just not gonna see me that week and then we can move on to the next week, you know? Um I don't answer emails or respond to people on my days off. Right. Like so you you I think a lot of boundary um building or or boundaries in general really are personal to the person because you have to know what's, what is going to be overstepping for you, right? What, what conversations are you not willing to have with your clients? Um, what conversations are they not willing to have with you? Cause you can, you can read the, the room, right? You can read the energy. If you ask somebody something and they don't really respond, then, you know, move on. And maybe that's, and, and that's part of your relationship building is learning this person maybe is not going to reciprocate certain conversations with you and that's okay. Take note of it and don't do it again right? That's a part of your relationship. And you have to know what you feel most comfortable with um, in order for you to have sanity really in this business, right? Because it's especially with one-on-ones, like you, you're already exchanging so much energy with these people. Um, they do become, you know, blurred lines of, of intimacy to a degree, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, you're being, especially if you're dealing with like pain management, you're being led into a very vulnerable place with people. Um, and you need to know how to cut that energy off when the hour is done. Goodbye. Have a nice day, you know, move on and, and don't, don't linger, right. Don't linger um, unless you want to linger. Cause that again is personal, right. And that might be something that you're okay with. You might not mind having that extra five minute conversation with, with your client at the end of the session. For me, that doesn't work because I typically have a client lined up afterwards and then everything gets, you know, messy after that. So I think that's really personal, but you have to be willing to say no. Um, and whether it's a, a obvious no, where you're like, no, I'm not available and no, I can't come to this thing and no, I can't do that day and no, I can't do that time. Or if it's a little less obvious where um, you're just not responding you know, yeah. on your days off. You don't need to respond to emails just because the email came to you. Just because the email came into your box and your phone went off doesn't mean you have to reply right away. It's mm. it's okay. You don't have to. I give everybody permission. You don't have to answer the email just because you got it. You've been great with your permission today. Um, I think that 
that point about saying no and the way that you did it, I think is is really powerful because uh, when you said oh, I can't come to the thing or you know whatever, you didn't say but I can come at this other time because I think and I think that's the trap a lot of people fall into. They say no and they want to say yes, you know they want to say no but yes at this other time sort of thing or no I can't do that but I could do this other session you know for you and and that's kind of like well that's great you don't have to do the session today but you have to do it next week instead so (laughs) you know so you didn't really say no you just kind of you know saddled your future self with it instead of your present self and I think in my experience you know as as I've built a business and you just inherently get busier and I get 150 emails a day and I probably respond to three emails a week you know um, that you just can't say yes to everything. You just physically can't say yes to everything. And so there comes a point where you just, in order to sort of maintain your own sanity, you just have to say, it's just a no. And it's not a no, but I'll do this other thing. It's like, yeah, no, I can't do that. And that's right. the end. And it's, there's power. And there's power behind that. And, you know, I used to manage a studio at a big gym and, you know, had a lot of newer instructors coming through. And the one big thing that I would always uh try to instill in them was the power of no, you have to be okay with saying no, just say no, it's okay. Um, and I think that what happens is that there's a scarcity mindset and people get scared that they're not going to have enough money, that people aren't going to like them, that they're not going to have people on their schedules that, you know, there, there's this fear, um, that the result is going to be that people aren't going to come in and they're not going to be successful, but it's actually the opposite. The more you say no to people and they see that you're strong in your conviction, right? That these are my hours. This is when I'm available. There might be a but at the end, but it's going to fall into my boundaries, right? Like, yeah, I can't meet this time, but I have this one last hour available on Fridays at 11. And if you could do that, then you could do that. And again, if you can, you know, it's too bad. I'm sorry. I'll see you next week. It's okay. It's okay to say no to people. And it's going to make you more powerful because again, you'll have more freedom. You'll have more control over your time. Right. And then you won't be burnt out doing these 14 hour days. You won't be burnt out staying around for another hour when you really didn't want to stay around for another hour. And you won't have all that agita or that anxiety that goes with saying yes to something that, you know, in your gut was not a yes. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, in your yeah. gut that you wanted to say no, but you offered it anyway because you were scared. And I, I'd, I'd beg to say that whatever money that you're making from that hour is not worth your sanity. And it's not worth you feeling um, anxious and it's not worth you feeling like you don't want to be there because that low frequency that you're buzzing at then is just going to affect the relationship, right? Because now you're walking into this low energy and you don't want to be there. And this other person's going to feed off of that. And what kind of session is that? Is that inspiring for you to walk in with low energy? No, <laughs> not at all. Right. So, I, you know, I, I think people will find this really valuable. I mean, I've, I've gained a lot from this conversation. I actually, I wanted to, there's, there's the whole other area I want to talk about with you, which is the sales side of things and mm-hmm. how to, you know, client walks in, how do you turn them into a seven-year client, you know? How do you turn someone walking in off the street going, gee, I've never tried Pilates before, but, you know, huh, what's that machine over there? To seven years later, they're sending you a Christmas card and going, you know, I fell off my bike, you know, and I thought of you. I think that's, you know, that's a whole other conversation. I'd really like to tee that up and, and have that because of your experience leading sales in Pilates at Equinox and you've got a degree in business, made, you know, majoring in small business um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you've got, you've created this successful business for yourself. 
in Manhattan, which, you know, for those of you from the planet Mars and you don't know, it's like <laughs> fucking expensive. <laughs> and, yes. <laughs> um, and, and you've got high paying clients in that business and loyal regular high paying clients, you know, so you've kind of like in many ways you've created a fantastic scenario for yourself. And like you said at the start of the conversation, none of that was handed to you on a platter that in many ways, you know, lots of doors were kind of closed in your face and that, so you've, you've gone out and you've created this. And I think that's something that a lot of people would, you know, like to understand more about, you know, how do I, you know, maybe they don't want to work in Manhattan, but they, they want to apply those skills to their own goals, their own dreams. Yes. So um, that's a conversation I'm really looking forward to having um, because I think that that sales and business building skill set that you've, that you've got and that you've deployed in your own business um, is something that a lot of people in our industry would really love to, you know, to, to, to have. And, you know, for you to share that, I think would be fantastic because you've really just created your own path there. So, um, I'm looking forward to our second, our second on air conversation. Me too. Super excited. Um, yeah. it's been so awesome to talk with you, Laura. Uh, you know, I, I always, I have to admit, I, I am a sucker for a New York accent and <laughs> ever since watching Gene Kelly movies, um, <laughs> when I was a kid, um, so, and I, and I, the, the, the one time I have been to New York, I stayed in Brooklyn and I love, I've got really fond memories of, of, you know, walking around Park Slope and, um, you know, it's just, a, it's a magical place in, in my mind because, you know, in Australia here, we see it all in the movies and all of that. Right. But, um, I think, you know, you're, I'm really glad that we get to share your voice with the community because you bring a, like a, a wholly different perspective to one that I'm used to. And I, I can only hope for, you know, for those instructors listening who are not in New York, <laughs> you know, this, you know, a lot of this stuff will be revelatory, I, I imagine, for a lot of people as well. And even those in New York, um, you're included in this as well, that I think just this, the, these things are really important to think about that I think I don't know. I, I just can't believe that everyone in New York's a dancer. I think there must be people <laughs> in New York. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they must be like somewhere. <laughs> I think it's just not at the studios I was at. I don't know where they are. <laughs> but I was, I, yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, and I, I don't want, you know, it to sound like I uh, didn't have some great experiences. You know, being around dancers is amazing and seeing what their bodies can do is amazing. Um, I, 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 I mean, I've seen some things <laughs> that I'm like, whoa, like I didn't even know that was possible, but I think that it's important to draw the line between, you know, what some bodies are capable of and then what other bodies are capable of. And we're all bodies and that's okay. And we're all capable of different things. And, um, we have to remind our clients of that, that like, they don't have to look any certain way in order for them to be successful and for them to be strong and for them to be confident. Um, there's no rule book, right. That says that like, here's exactly what you need to look like in order to do Pilates. You just have to show up and try. Um, and it may not always feel easy and it may not always feel successful, but showing up is the first step and trying is the second. Great talk.
Yeah, this is so great. Thank you.